So today we're starting a brand new series called Counterattack, Taking Back Ground, Lost to Sin. When I was thinking about this, I thought about, so I'm about to turn 57. So seven years ago, Janie saved for years and years and years. I mean, lots of years. She saved for me to go on a cruise with her and to have a balcony. Now, one time we had a balcony before my parents had paid for the trip. It was just by, it was a fluke thing, but she thought that was the greatest thing ever. Now, when I was paying for cruises, I would go the cheapest way possible. You know, those, those lower in interior rooms that are dark. I love to sleep in the dark and it was quiet and all that. But Janie said, for your 50th, we are booking a balcony room. I said, yes, ma'am. And it was, it was awesome. Now here's the problem. Just a few weeks before, we were going to go on our vacation. So we were going to fly to Florida, stay there a couple of days uh, in Fort Lauderdale, hop on a ship, and then we were going to cruise all of these southern Caribbean islands, four different islands in eight days. It was going to be awesome. But I, I developed this, this toothache, and it wasn't a constant toothache. It's only when I would eat. So after I would eat two or three hours, excruciating pain. So I decided to go to my dentist, and my dentist does an x-ray, and he says, well, you got a cracked tooth. And I said, well, what do we do about that? And he said, I'll put on a temporary crown before you go on your vacation, and then when you come back, I'll put on a permanent crown, and that should take care of the problem. Don't ever schedule dental surgery the day before you go on a vacation. The day before I went, he puts on the temporary crown, and it was unbelievable pain. So we go on our cruise, and every time I would eat, I would just complain, and I would just complain. It just hurt. We get in our balcony room, and we've never, we'd had a balcony once before. There's a couch in the balcony. We'd never had a couch. And, and so every night, I would wake up just in this excruciating pain. I'd move over on the couch, and I would whine and, and moan quietly because I didn't want to wake Janie up. But for two or three hours every night, I would just be going, uh-huh. So unless you want to remember a vacation for the wrong reason, do not have major surgery the day before you leave. That's, that's part of that. Now, I finally had to go to the, uh, the ship's doctor. It was so bad, I went to the ship's doctor and I said, give me something. He, he gave me ibuprofen, charged me 10 bucks a pill for ibuprofen, and that did nothing. Now, long story short, I come back and the guy says, okay, we're going to put on your permanent crown. That wasn't the issue. The issue was the root I had to have a root canal. So for several more months, I'm like, dude, this is ridiculous. He said, I'm sending you to a specialist. I go to the specialist in Tyler and he, he, you know, I I do the mask and I'm laying there and he goes, okay. And he's talking to me. I have no clue what the dude's saying. And then he drills and, you know, I'm thinking this should hurt, but it doesn't. So, Hey, this is good. And I'm laying there and all of a sudden he goes, Oh my. And, and I don't remember everything that was going on at the time. So when I came back to I said, what was the oh my about? And he goes, no wonder you were in pain. He said, when I got through to the root, I got all the way down, it exploded. The infection and the blood was, the pressure, it just exploded. And I'm like, please tell me I'm not going to feel it again. He goes, there's no root left. I took it out. You will not feel anything. And I'm like, yes, I love you. You know, that, it was awesome. Now, all the pain medicine in the world would not have cured my problem. Why? Because we were treating a symptom. We weren't treating the root problem. It was literally a root problem. It wasn't until I got on antibiotics, I had surgery, and the root of my problem was removed that the pain went away. Many of you are struggling in your spiritual lives because you're treating the symptoms. You're not treating the root problem. This series is going to be about treating the root problem. So what is the root problem? Well, Ephesians 6.12 tells us this. 
For our struggle is not against flesh and blood. How many people in here are flesh and blood? No matter what someone in your family has said, you're not a demonic terror. You're flesh and blood, right? Okay. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood. If it's not against flesh and blood, what's it against? Against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in what kind of realms? Heavenly realms. Help me again. In what kind of realms? Heavenly realms. So here's the reality of your situation. We're in a spiritual battle. And to win this war, we need to have spiritual weapons. I've been reading several books, and you're going to hear from these over the, over the weeks. Counterattack by Jay Cardi. It's a great book. Um, Warfare by Tony Evans, one of my favorite pastors in the world. And Victory in Spiritual Warfare, also by Tony Evans. I'll be talking about those and a couple of those in a minute. But Tony um, said this in, in Warfare. Everything that we do in the physical realm is caused, provoked, or influenced by something in the invisible spiritual realm. He says, until we... Until we address the spiritual root of the problem, we will never fix the physical effects of that problem. So I wanted to share this with you today. Um, let's see, page 34. Had it marked and it fell out. Satan's agenda and his strategy are all-encompassing, but there's something you and I need to know about, the, uh, about both of them. They have already be, been defeated. In fact, Satan and his minions have already lost this battle. Now, this is what I want you to hear. Any advancement they, the demonic forces, make in your life on this earth is because they have been given permission to do so. The only power they have is the power you grant them in your life. Satan was able to get access to to ruling the planet only because Adam and Eve gave him permission to do so. So essentially, demons need permission from us to bring hell on us. Here it is. If hell is happening in your life, it is because hell has been given permission to be happening in your life. Hell was told either through sin or through circumstance that you were willing to yield. You communicated something like this. Hell, it's okay for you to rule my mind. It's okay for you to rule my emotions. It's okay for you to rule my will and my body. Hell, if I give you permission to tell me I'm not really a man, even though I was born a male. Hell, I give you permission to tell me I'm not really a woman, even though I was born female. Hell, hell, I give you permission to tell me that I want drugs, I need drugs, I can't stop using drugs. Hell, I give you permission to tell me I need a drink, can't live without another drink, can't go to sleep without a drink. Hell, I give you permission to tell me I should wake up depressed, stay depressed, and go to bed depressed. Hell, I give you permission to tell me that I can't control my anger, my spending, my desires, that I am not loved or that I will never amount to anything of significance. The list of things we allow Satan to tell us can go on forever. Some of it may certainly be related to chemicals or biological malfunctions, but much of what we call mental illness today is actually caused by demons who have been given permission to make someone mentally unstable. Here's what Tony says. After 30 years, 35 years of working with individuals through struggles in their lives as a pastor and counselor, I'm convinced that much of what we label or try to drug away is simply a result of Satan having his way. I'm not saying that the physical components aren't real, but they are often incited and encouraged by demons who have been allowed to roam free. Satan operates by consent and cooperation. You have to allow him access into your life for strongholds to be built. He operates subtly, changing the worldview, beliefs, thought patterns of the individual, family, church, or society that he's targeting. Once those schemes are adopted, he is given greater permission to make himself at home. Uh, Much like roaches that have been allowed to stay in a filthy kitchen, demons that have set up camp are difficult to drive off. So God tells us that we have some 
we have some weapons, but we have to understand where they are to access them. Here's what he says. Um, so, so let me go back and say this. The foundational principle of, for a life of total victory over demonic forces is our struggle is not against flesh and blood. So here's what he tells us in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with how many spiritual blessings? Every spiritual blessing in the what kind of places? Heavenly places in Christ. So God resides in the heavenly places and so do all of our spiritual blessings. This is important because if you're in a spiritual battle and you need spiritual weapons, you're not going to get them on this planet. According to this verse, God the Father, Jesus Christ, and all of our spiritual blessings dwell where? In the heavenly places. They dwell where? In the heavenly places. And if you don't understand this, you're going you're to be fighting a battle on earth and you will constantly be defeated. Uh, got a picture here. Show that picture if you would. How many of you would like to be the family that lived in that house? Anyone? How many of you would like to have a, an empty squirt gun to fight that battle? Pew, pew, pew. I'll get you fire. Pew, pew, pew. It's empty. Nothing. That's exactly how your fighting spiritual warfare happens if you don't access heavenly weapons. Do you want somebody fighting that fire like that? Many of you, your families are being attacked. Many of you as individuals, you're being attacked. And it's because you've opened up the doors to the enemy and you're fighting like this. So how do we gain access to these heavenly weapons? Ephesians 2, 5, and 6 tells us, But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our wrongdoings or sins, he made us alive. So we're all, every one of us is dead in our sins. We don't need somebody to make us better. We need somebody to make us alive. These three kids who gave their lives to Christ and were baptized today, they were testifying to you. They're not, they're not following a dead Savior. When they came out of the water, they're following a risen Savior who made them alive spiritually. He made us live together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised up with him. And look at this. And seated us with him where? In heavenly places in Christ Jesus. When you accept Christ as the forgiver of your sins and the leader of your life, you were transported to another, another sphere, heavenly sphere, spiritually. And according to the Bible, someday physically, when you die, you'll get a new body in heaven. But your residence uh, is there in heaven. Once you understand how the heavenly realms operate, you can begin to change what happens on earth. So if our problems originate in the heavenlies, then we need a solution that comes from the heavenlies to fight our earthly battles. And what do you know? God offers that in his word. Second Peter 1.3 says this, his, and that is God we're talking about, his what kind of power? Do you know what divine power is? It's not of this world power. It's supernatural power. You and I have natural power. Even those Olympic athletes, I love watching the Olympics. They have earthly, natural power. We don't need that kind of power. We need supernatural power. His divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life. But what's the problem? Through our knowledge of him. I don't think most of us know him. We don't have a good knowledge of him. Our knowledge of him is insufficient. And so we're fighting battles with an empty squirt gun. You're surrounded by a spiritual enemy, but the, but the battle is not for lands. It's not for titles. The battle is for glory. 
The issue is who's going to be worshipped. And don't think for a second it's you. It's the enemy of God who tries to get us to worship. The enemy of God actually in heaven, before the, the earth was ever created, he said, you can't have all the glory, God. I want some for myself. And look what God said to him in Isaiah 48, 11. My glory, I will not give to another. God wants to display his glory through you, but he will not give you his glory. He'll give you his goodness. He'll give you authority. He will not give you his glory. And this is a battle for glory. So the enemy of God, he was kicked out of heaven. He, he didn't get any of God's glory. So he's running around on earth, influencing physical lives. And he wants to do two things in this war. He wants to keep non-believers from believing He wants you in hell. He wants to destroy your life if you're not a believer. If you are a believer, he wants to keep you powerless in sin because that brings him glory when Christians have no power. Now, I know too many of us simply give up and give in to temptation because we think we can't hold out just one more minute, but I want want you to use your imaginations for just a second. And let's say whatever your temptation is, I don't know what your temptation is, whatever your temptation is, let's say you're about to give in, but as soon as you're about to give in, this beautiful, majestic angel shows up with a fistful of $100 bills and says, for every minute you resist this temptation, I'll give you one of these $100 bills. I think many of us would would discover a new level of intensity and, and an ability to resist temptation, don't you? And the angel says, I'll give you a million dollars if you'll just hold out. I think you could hold out, right? Anyone? Anyone want a million? Who wants to be a millionaire? Right? If the angel was there and offered, I bet you could hold out a million minutes. You'd find a new level of resistance. God has the power. The Bible calls it resurrection power. And those of you who went with us to uh, Lake Charles, in our devotional, I said, the same power. And then I called Brother Greg. He's, he's one of the church members. And I said, Brother Greg, you know, I said, everybody, said, so I just want you to do this. Say, same power. same power. Yeah, that's exactly what they did at the devotional. So I called Brother Greg in. I said, Brother Greg, I need you to show these people how to say same power that raised Jesus from the dead. So I said, Brother Greg, I want you to, and I can't do it because I've got this real high nasally voice, tenor voice. But he says, yeah, it sounds like James Earl Jones. He, he said, I said, Brother Greg, say same power. And he goes, same power. And, and I'm telling you, everybody who was there knows I got chill bumps because the same power that raised Jesus from the dead is available to his followers If that's true, and it is, how come we're so powerless? How come we don't resist temptation? Well, I'm about to tell you. We're going to go all the way back to the very first temptation in the Bible. Adam and Eve were tempted, and and we're going to find out that even though this story happened thousands of years ago, it is just as relevant today as the temptation you had last night or maybe the temptation you had on the way to church this morning. In Genesis 1 and 2, God speaks things into, into existence. Remember, he said, um, he, he said, let there be planets, and there were planets. He said, let there be light, and there was light. Let there be um, water. Let there be dry ground. Let there be animals. Let there be plants. And it wasn't just good. The scripture says everything God did was very good. 
So God's word, when he spoke the word, it was truth. It came to be, and it was very good. And then came Satan's lies. So you need to know truth is older than falsehood. And this truth thing is going to follow us all the way through this series. As we learn to tap into God's power, you don't tap into God's power with lies. I'm going to show you in a couple of weeks. God says, I do not lie. I cannot lie. And then Jesus said, the father of lies is the devil. So when you lie, you're giving glory to the enemy of God. You've got to understand truth existed before falsehood, and we have to tap into truth if we're going to overcome the power of temptation. So here it is in Genesis 3, verses 1 through 6, the very first temptation. Now the serpent was more crafty. That means he schemes. Now this was before he was cursed to, to crawl on the ground. We don't know what he looked like. But he's more crafty than any wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say? And this is one of the first things he's going to do. We're going to come back to this over and over. He's going to get you to question. Does the Bible really say that? Did God really say that? And wise people will not argue with the, with the enemy. Even the ark. Okay, so you need to know that Satan is not equal with God. He's not the, the opposite of God. There is none like God. Satan is the equal of one of the angels like Michael, the archangel, or Gabriel. So his, his equal is Michael. Michael, when he was, was going to take the body of Moses after Moses died, the Bible tells us in Jude, Michael did not argue with the enemy of God. He only said, the Lord rebuke you. If an angel who is more powerful than you and me will not argue with, will not discuss with the enemy of God anything, maybe you and I should not discuss with the enemies of God anything, right? So he says, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the tree in the garden, from the trees in the garden. But God said, you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden. He did say that. He didn't say the next part and you must not touch it. She added to the word of God and it got her in trouble or you will die. God did say you will die. Here's what the enemy of God says. You will certainly not die. Three times of types of death. There's physical death. We understand that, right? That's where your spirit is separated from your body. There is spiritual death, which is separation from God. That's why you need to be made alive. That's why if you, if you ask Jesus to be the forgiver of your sins and the leader of your life, he makes you alive spiritually. And then the third type of death is eternal death. That's, that's when you die physically without having a relationship with Jesus Christ. You go into a place called hell. God doesn't send people to hell. You choose hell by rejecting his son. The only way, Jesus said, the only way to get to the Father is through him. I'm not being narrow-minded. I'm just repeating what my founder of my religion says. There's one way. He's the only way. It's a narrow way. The enemy of God says, you're not going to die. For God knows, here it is, that when you eat from it, your eyes will be open. You will be like God, knowing good and evil. Oh, look what Eve does. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, she also realized it was desirable for gaining wisdom. I can be like God. She took some, ate it. And then to me, the most, the most shocking part of the whole story, she also gave some to her husband who was where? With her. He was passive. Instead of being a man, he stood by. Because God gave him the command, not her. He had to tell her. And when he did not stand up and say, no, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. He watched her sin. She turns, hands it to him. He sins as well. And that's when God comes in and pronounces a curse 
He was with her and he ate it. The enemy doesn't come to you with ugliness. Um, we don't know what he looked like, but, but shouldn't, shouldn't the fact that, okay, there's two humans, Adam and Eve. When, when an animal starts speaking to you, I don't know if you've read Narnia, you know, the Chronicles of Narnia, right? So I remember reading that to my kids. We read that at night. If an animal starts talking to you, please get help. Don't argue with it over scripture. Anyway, here's the point you need to know. The enemy comes in disguise. He does not have rattles on, you know, like a rattlesnake. I I really like rattlesnakes. I grew up around rattlesnakes. I like them so much better than copperheads or coral snakes. Copperheads are sneaky little suckers. I don't like them. He doesn't come with the roar of a hungry lion. He doesn't turn on a siren, or come red flag. He doesn't announce, I'm the angel that was kicked out of heaven and I'm here to destroy your life. He doesn't say that. He wants you to think he's a friend, a comfortable companion with whom you can discuss the things of the world. But the New Testament warns us that he can appear as an angel of light. And and when he does, he says, I won't hurt you. I just want to have a discussion. Did God really say Temptation comes to us in the form of a disguise and when we least expect it, and it comes from something over which we should have control. God had already told Adam and Eve to to have dominion over the earth, and that included the animals. So she should have had control of the situation. What was the problem? Well, let's jump to the New Testament. John tells us this in 1 John 2, 15 and 16. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If you love the world, that's the temporary. Then the love of the Father is not in you. These are the ways of the world, wanting to please our sinful selves, wanting the sinful things we see, and being too proud of what we have. None of these things come from the Father, but all of them from the world. So the enemy comes in and he tempts you with something from one of these three categories, or in Eve's sense, he tempted her with all three. So the first one is pleasing our sinful selves. You may have heard that as the lust of the flesh. Satan hits us with this temptation. Ooh, that will make me feel good. There's nothing wrong with making you feel good unless you have to do it in a way that's sinful. Sex was created by God, and as long as you have sex in marriage, it is a very good thing. But the moment you're tempted to fulfill a legitimate need in an illegitimate way, it is sinful, and you're glorifying Satan and not glorifying your heavenly Father. Wanting the sinful things we see, that's the lust of the eyes. Ooh, that sure looks good. There's nothing wrong with having something that looks good unless you go and get that thing in an illegitimate way. Being too proud of what we have, that's the boastful pride of life. Satan hits us with the thought, ooh, that will make me look good in the eyes of others. Did you know that the only people who care what you drive are really shallow people who suck? That's the only people who care what you drive. Well, you and really shallow people who suck. Nobody else cares. Here's the problem. Whatever captures your attention will will eventually capture your body. The enemy slides up next to you as a companion and says, just think about it. Just think about it. Don't run away. I'm not going to hurt you. I'm here to help you because did God really say? And when you think about it, it captures your imagination and your body follows your imagination. All All he has to do is plant the seed. And when you keep thinking about it, some of us could actually stand up and say, I pledge allegiance to sexual sin because that's what I've been thinking about my whole life. And now I'm a slave to sexual sin. I pledge allegiance to drugs, alcohol, power, money. 
because that's all that's in my imagination. I pledge allegiance to anything but God, and it brings glory to the enemy of God. I'm actually glad that, that I, I was looking through some sermons in preparation for this, this message today, and, and I came across something from 21 years ago. I never would have remembered this if I haven't written this in, in the sermon. So Caleb was five, and Rachel was three, and I'm, I, I don't think Hannah was born yet. If she was, she was just a baby. So I was getting them ready for bed, and part of our um, routine for bed was we would read the Bible and pray, and we would have fun when we'd read the Bible and pray. And so I go to um, put them in their rooms, and Caleb's room is an absolute disaster. You can't even walk. And as I walked by, I saw Rachel's was just as bad, and I said, time out clean your rooms, right? And and my kids knew at that stage, and they still know, when dad says something, he means that. You don't have to obey it, but you're going to pay the consequences. So I said, clean your rooms. When you finish, then I'll pray with you, and and we'll read the Bible. We'll have fun. We'll do our normal routine. So I walked away, and then I decided to sneak up on them and see what they were doing. So Caleb's five, and probably one of the few times in his life, I sneak up on Caleb, and he's doing exactly what he's supposed to do. He is picking stuff up and he hears me and he looks up and I said, good job. I whispered it. But I noticed there was a lot of silence from three-year-old Rachel's room. If you're a parent, you know silence is never good. So I sneak into her room. When you come in her room, the closet is over here and the doors, it's two doors. And so they open like this so you can actually be hidden in there. And so I peek through the gap Three-year-old Rachel has a slinky. She's making all kinds of cute little three-year-old noises. Hadn't touched her room. Caleb and Hannah would tell you this is one of the few times in Rachel's life that she didn't obey, but okay, because she's very compliant. She's just making the cutest little noises. It would have been real cute, except she was being disobedient to her father. I said, Rachel... I'm hurrying, Daddy. And she starts flying around the room. Oh, she's putting stuff up. You weren't hurrying. You were being disobedient. So, okay, because Rachel's compliant, I have no doubt in my mind that when she picked up the slinky, she was going to go put it in the closet. I have no doubt because Daddy said, clean up your room. But somewhere from the three steps to the closet, it moved. And then it moved again. And move it again. And move it again. The lust of her eyes did her in. So one little bounce became two little bounces and three little bounces. And all of a sudden, she was completely sucked into the deception of full blown slinky sin. <laughs> Is the slinky bad? Not at all, unless it causes you to be disobedient to your father. Her sin came from an object she should have had control over. Comes the same way to you. I doubt that a slinky has much, poses much trouble for you, but the enemy knows where to hit you. He uses things that look good, that make us feel good, things over which we should have control. We should have control over our eyes, our mouths, our television sets, our radio stations, our bodies, our imaginations, and our hearts, but we don't. Why is it that Christians don't have any power to resist the devil and demonstrate God's power to the world? I think it's because we have Bluebell in the refrigerator. (laughs) 
let's say that I'm on a diet, and I am, right? So knowing that some of you might come check my refrigerator, I threw away all my bluebell this morning. I threw it away. But let's say I'm on a diet. I've been convicted, and I have been convicted by the Lord. I'm heavier than I've ever been, so I'm, I'm, I'm going to, Janie and I are made a pact, and we're going to lose some weight. So let's say that today I go to Walmart, and I intentionally walk down the frozen aisle, the dessert aisle. And it's on the right, and it's about four or five doors down, and it's down at the bottom. I am very aware of where homemade bluebell, homemade vanilla is. And I stop. I know I shouldn't, but I look at it. It captures my attention. And before you know it, I'm back at the counter, and I'm buying some bluebell sin. Now, if you know me, I don't buy just bluebell. I buy Oreo cookies and caramel syrup. If you want the taste of what heaven must be like, (laughs) crack open those Oreos, four or five at least. And I used to, when when Janie and I got married, it's all her fault I'm fat. Um, When... (laughs) When we got married, I really did. I would do one or two scoops because I thought that's what you did. In my house, man, you die. And Chuck and Bess Washburn's house, if you got more than two scoops, the first time Janie gave me a bowl of ice cream, it was spilling out. I mean, I'm licking the bowl, and I'm like, I didn't know you could do this. So I put the cookies in there, and I put all, it's spilling over, and then I just drench it in caramel. And then if you know anything about me, I set it aside for about five to seven minutes because I want it melting. I want my Oreo cookies soft. And and Janie laughs because every time I do this, I'll eat it. And then Rachel and Janie have this thing because it'll go clink, 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 because I'm getting everything. I mean, every drop, clink, 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 clink. And then every time I'm like, man, that was good. And Janie's like, Okay. So let's say I go and I get all of my stuff and I drive home. And by the time I get into my driveway, the Lord has convicted me. And so I jump out of my truck and I fall to my knees and I say, Oh God, I'm sorry for buying the bluebell ice cream. Please help me not eat the bluebell ice cream. And then I walk inside my house and y'all just pretend this is a freezer. I open up the freezer and I stick my bluebell in there. How much power was in my prayer? How much power was in my prayer? I had already decided that I was going to live against my prayers. Why did I put it in the fridge? Why did I put it in the freezer? Because I didn't want it to melt. Y'all don't know anything about Bluebell. I was going to keep it in there until I could justify in my mind eating it. And the Lord knew that my prayers had no power I was going against him, so the Lord's not going to answer that. No power. I I was giving lip service to God, so I was being double-minded as I prayed. And here's what James, the brother of Jesus, half-brother Jesus says about that. The person, that person, the person who's being double-minded, should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. If you're double-minded, if you're going against your prayers before you even pray them, how much are you going to get from the Lord? Nothing. Such a person is, a double-minded, is double-minded, unstable in all they do. Double-minded prayers say one thing while meaning another, and God isn't falling for it. So when, you're, when you're, the words of your heart 
When your heart doesn't match the words of your prayers, you're being double-minded, unstable in all your ways. You have bluebell in your freezer. Bluebell stifles the power of prayer. So let me give you some ways that you're... you're how many of y'all suffer with bluebell? See? Okay, a few of us, right? All right, I got you. I knew it, Dave. Here's some examples of, of how you might be double-minded. This comes from counterattack. The stay-at-home mom who won't miss her soap operas during the week but wonders why she's having thoughts about having an affair. Teenagers who say, I just want to talk, but they go to some remote place and begin making out, and then they're confused when their passion takes them beyond just a little bit of kissy face. A man who says he wants to quit drinking but continues to go to parties to walk by the tavern he normally visits or to keep a bottle hidden in his closet. The family in debt who prays, oh God, help us be responsible with our spending, but continues to go shopping for entertainment and continues to charge things with money they don't have. The student who prays, God, help me not to cheat on the test today, and then picks, up, picks his seat next to the smartest person in class, just in case. The person who joins the church prayer chain just to stay current with the latest information, that is rampant in the church. The teenager who prays, oh, Lord, help me not to do drugs tonight as she goes out the door on her way to a party where she knows drugs will be available. Each of these people want to continue their behavior more than they want to change. They ask God for power to do what they really don't want to do, which is a useless endeavor. They have, they have he called it eclairs. I'm going to say they have bluebell in their freezer. They're double-minded and there is no power in their praying. You may be double-minded and you don't even know it. If you have never asked God to show you the, the eclairs in your refrigerator or the bluebell in your freezer, it may be that you have some, some pastries in cold storage and are unaware of it. You need to get rid of them. Their footholds, we're going to talk about a foothold is actually a fortress. The enemy has built a fortress in your, in your life and you don't even know it. And he uses it as a base of operations to oppress you. God looks at the heart. He's not concerned with words. And since he knows, as much, he knows us much better than we know ourselves, it's a cinch. We cannot deceive him. Sometimes we can fool ourselves, but we cannot deceive God. We are storing bluebell in the freezer when we try. Since bluebell in the freezer kills the power of prayer, don't look for any help from God when your words don't match your heart. If you want to be free from your hurts, your habits, and your hang-ups, you have to start with truth. And you have to clean out your freezer. A failure to clean out your freezer will defeat you before you even begin this process. Because here's the truth you need to know today. You cannot be double-minded and be victorious over your past. That's that last slide. You cannot be double-minded and have victory over the hurts, habits, and hang-ups from your past. So right now, I'm, I'm going to challenge you to choose either victory or defeat. And some of you, sad to say, years from now, you're going to look back on this day and say, that preacher told me, and I didn't listen. And I wasted 5, 10, some of you are going to waste 50 or 60 years if the Lord allows you to live that long. The rest of this series, and this is going to go on for weeks. In fact, I don't even have an ending date yet. So much reading, realizing so many Christians are powerless, and it's time we did something about it. The rest of this series is going to talk about how you can tap into God's power, God's authority, and live a victorious Christian life. Because 2 Peter 1.3 says, 
His divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. I want to give you more knowledge about him so you can tap into his power. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your love and your grace. We thank you that we have a power, the same power that raised Jesus from the dead to help us defeat your enemy, God. I pray that someone today, someone in the room, someone online would make a decision. They've had enough. They're tired of living defeated lives. They're ready to come into your presence and allow you, Lord, to show them the bluebell in their freezer. They need to clean it out, make them, help them make a decision today that regardless of what anyone else thinks, they're going to do the right thing before you and they're going to start stepping into victory. I pray that you make New Life Community Church a safe haven for those who are far from God. But Lord, don't leave them far from you. Give them tools and equipment to grow up spiritually to defeat your enemy. And we pray this in the holy and matchless name of Jesus. Amen.